Here's our question. Do we really believe that God is sovereign? And if God is sovereign, how sovereign is he? Is he sovereign over just the big things, or is he intimately sovereign over all the details? Is he sovereign over just the ends, or is he also sovereign over the means that bring about those ends? Is he sovereign over just the big, important turning point moments, or is he sovereign even over little old you going about your seemingly unextraordinary life filled with your going to work and your writing emails and your buying of groceries and other mundane tasks? Is God in control even of that? Sure feels like I'm exercising some sovereignty, right? It sure feels like I'm making some choices along the way or that other people are making some choices that affect me. At times, we're in such dire straits that this thing we are going through couldn't possibly be part of his plan, right? At times, maybe it even feels like God's forgotten us. Is God really sovereign? How sovereign? To frame the problem perhaps a little differently... Wrestling with whether we really believe in God's sovereignty is difficult in any age, but perhaps particularly difficult in our modern secular age. In referring to our age as a secular age, philosopher Charles Taylor means that we live in a context where belief in God is understood to be one option among others and frequently not the easiest to embrace. It's a context wherein we know our claims about God are cross-pressured, embattled, contested by more naturalistic explanations of life. And so Taylor says of the believer in this age, we cannot help looking over our shoulder from time to time, looking sideways, living our faith also in a condition of doubt and uncertainty. Or another author would summarize it this way, the secular touches everything. It not only makes unbelief possible, it also changes belief. It impinges upon Christianity or elsewhere. Even as faith endures in our secular age, believing doesn't come easy. Faith is fraught. Confession is haunted by an inescapable sense of its contestability. We don't believe instead of doubting. We believe while doubting. We're all Thomas now. End quote. To borrow from my professional life, If this secularism is the swimming pool that we're all swimming in, then it is quite possible that we have swallowed some of its water. It's quite possible that secular understandings of the world do indeed have some continued hold on us. And so we do well to reflect deeply on those in light of the truth we see from God's word this morning. In our passage today, we will see that despite the way things may appear, God is utterly sovereign in accomplishing his purposes in the world. He is sovereign over the means and the end. He is sovereign over rulers and authorities. He is sovereign over suffering and injustice. He is sovereign for his purposes and for his glory. So then my prayer today is that we might leave out of here stirred up by the majesty of God, that by his word we might be awakened anew from the malaise of everyday life, that we might be provoked to a greater God-centeredness in the days days ahead, that we might rest knowing that he is in control, and yet still we might get to work knowing that he accomplishes his sovereign plans through means even us. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you reveal yourself to us through your word. Help us to understand your word. 
Help us to see where your word contrasts with the prevailing views of our day. Lord, comfort us this morning where we need to be comforted. Convict us where we need to be convicted. God, speak through me now. I say with Joseph, it's not in me, but Lord, we need you to do what only you can do. Lord, stir our hearts this morning. Move our hands to action. Lord, change us. If your word is, if this word is from you, Lord, and we confess that it is, and if your spirit is active among us and we confess that he is, Lord, then change us now. Amen. Before turning to our passage today, let us briefly review where we are in the story this morning. Okay. In chapter 37, we read that Joseph, age 17, was unpopular with his brothers because he was their father's favorite. And then he had two dreams, each with the message that he would lead over his family. When Joseph shared these dreams with his family, his brothers hated him even more. And, and then one day, his brothers seize him and sell him into slavery. In chapter 39, the slave traders take Joseph down to Egypt where he is purchased by Potiphar. Potiphar's, in Potiphar's house, the Lord was with him and caused all that he did to succeed, and so Joseph rises to be in charge of everything. But then Potiphar's wife becomes taken with Joseph, and Joseph rejects her advances until one day she falsely accuses him and Joseph is thrown in prison. Then, in the end of chapter 39, we read that while Joseph was in prison, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor, and so Joseph rises to be put in charge of all the prisoners. In the chapter 40, we read about two prisoners who had dreams and how Joseph interpreted their dreams accurately, and each of those things came to pass. The baker is hanged, just as Joseph had predicted, and then the cupbearer is restored to his role in Pharaoh's house. Joseph had asked the cupbearer, only remember me when it is well with you. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. But then chapter 40 closes with this, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And that's where we pick up the story today. Joseph remains in prison. The cupbearer's forgotten him. And I think it's natural to ask, if you're just reading along in the story, has God forgotten him as well? The narrative of our story today breaks down in four parts that may be helpful for you as we read. Given that we have 57 verses to cover, we will do the readings part by part, then take a quick moment to summarize, make a few points, and then step back to look at the story as a whole. So in the first section, we see Pharaoh's dreams and dilemma. Second section, we see Joseph's deliverance and Pharaoh's retelling, then Joseph's interpretation plan and elevation, then Joseph's rule according to the plan. So follow along as we pick up the story in Genesis 41, reading now verses 1 to 8. And as we read, note the repeated use of the word behold that gives this section a sense of suspense. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep, and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. 
And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears, and Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Joseph is now 13 years from being sold into slavery, from age 17 to 30, and now two years has passed since Joseph had interpreted those two dreams for the cupbearer. And for two years now, the cupbearer has forgotten Joseph. But then Pharaoh dreamed. And in his dream, you have seven plump cows, and then seven skinny cows come up and eat the plump ones. And then Pharaoh wakes up, rolls over, goes back to sleep. Then he dreams again, and this time it's grain. Seven ears of plump and good grain come up on a stalk, and then seven ears of weak grain. And the weak grain swallows up the healthy grain. So then Pharaoh wakes up, thinks to himself, we got to get to the bottom of this, calls together all of his best guys, and no one can interpret his dreams. And as we're reading this, even if we're not familiar with the story, we're starting to have an idea about what might be coming next. We're starting to see a plan coming together. Verse 9. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, behold, in my dream, I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind sprouted after them, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. So the cupbearer finally remembers his old pal Joseph, right? So Joseph's brought in. Pharaoh says, I heard you can interpret dreams. Joseph deflects and says, not me, but God can. So then Pharaoh retells his dream, and we can, we can observe perhaps an increasing concern in Pharaoh's retelling of it. In verse 19, we see some added commentary on the ugly skinny cows with Pharaoh now calling them such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And then we see further elaboration in verse 24, but when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them for they were still as ugly as the beginning. So 
Skinny cow eats the plump cow. Skinny cow is now supposed to get plump, right? But that's not what's happening. So we see that Pharaoh is still troubled in spirit. And this section closes in verse 24 with a repetition from verse 8. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Now, picking up in verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years. And the seven empty ears, blighted by the east wind, are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream, and the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this, in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. So now we see Joseph give the interpretation, and Joseph is in that unenviable position of foretelling a famine that is to come. For seven years it'll go well, but then there will be seven years of famine. And then we see something significant in Joseph's interpretation in verse 32, as it shines a spotlight on the meaning of this whole passage. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God. And God will shortly bring it about. Joseph says, Pharaoh, listen, because you had two dreams, this means that the thing is fixed by God. And if you're reading through Genesis, if you've been with us through this series, or even if you're just familiar with the story up until now, light bulbs start going off in your mind, right? Immediately, you begin connecting some dots. If the doubling of the dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will bring it about, then wouldn't that call to our minds another double dream that we saw in this story? If that what is here meant by the doubling of dreams, then could it be? Surely this also means that Joseph's double dream of leading his family also is fixed by God and will come to pass? So the double dream means it is fixed by God. And then having pronounced what God and his sovereignty is about to bring about, Joseph then prescribes the course of action. Joseph says, first, you're going to need a wise man. And we already know what to think of all Pharaoh's best wise men, right? Um, and then he says, save up food now or Egypt will be cut off through famine. So read with me now verse 41 and then on into verse 3 of chapter 42 as we 
sneak a quick peek into next week's chapter. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot, and they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonath-Paneah, and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of Om. So Joseph went over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years that the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the stored houses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to, to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. So, clearly, so Pharaoh concludes, Clearly Joseph must be the man for the job. And we see again that God has once again caused Joseph to rise in favor. First, he rose up in Potiphar's house. Then we saw where God caused him to rise in prison. And now God has caused Joseph to rise again, this time to be set over all the land of Egypt, answering only to Pharaoh. And now Joseph gets to work on the plan. God had ordained it. Joseph knows that. And so Joseph gets to work. And then it comes to pass, just as Joseph had predicted. Note in the last section the repeated use of the word all 11 times in the ESV beginning in verse 47 but picking up pace in 54. He gathered up all the food. There was a famine in all the lands. We have again a repetition for a purpose, this time to provide emphasis on just how pervasive the famine is, all the land, and yet just how good the provision is. All the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. So pervasive that even back home, Jacob will hear that they have grain to sell down in Egypt and send the brothers to buy it. And so, having been through unimaginable suffering 
we see in a moment that the stage is now set for God's plan to come together in Joseph's life. God has sovereignly orchestrated this series of events in order that he could provide for his people. Recall that God had promised Abraham back in chapter 22 that he would make of him a great nation with descendants as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Recall how the book of Genesis is primarily dealing with this promise to Abraham of a people. Note how our text evokes that same language in verse 49 to call to your mind the bigger arc of what God is doing. All that has gone on in Joseph's life has been leading to the moment where God sovereignly executes his plan for his purposes. So, For this morning, if we step back to view the forest, if we step back to the 30,000-foot level, what does God want us to learn from this story in Joseph's life? What is his intent to the Israelites as they wander in the desert as Moses pins these words? I think it's simply this. God is utterly sovereign in accomplishing his purposes in the world. When we think he is silent, he's still at work. When we think things have gone awry, he remains totally, utterly in control. When we think too much time has passed, his timing is always right on time. He is sovereignly reigning over this world, and no one will thwart his plan. Again, verse 32 points to this and saying, The doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God. These events are fixed by God. What we see in the story of Joseph in this chapter, but also taken together as a whole from chapter 37, is that God is always in control. He is always reigning over the world, accomplishing his purposes, and no matter how things appear, he is on the throne. God was in control in the pit. He was in control in Potiphar's house, in prison, and he's in control exalting Joseph to Pharaoh's house. God was in control when Joseph's robe was taken by his brothers, when his shirt is taken by Potiphar's wife, and he was in control when Pharaoh restores him, clothing him in fine linen. And if God is sovereign there, accomplishing his purposes, then the Israelites wandering in the desert must conclude he's sovereign even over their circumstances. And we must conclude the same for us even now. We look around the world, right, and it seems out of control. We must rest in faith knowing that God is sovereign even over 2020. Wherever you are this morning, whether brought low or riding high, whether facing abundance or facing need, God is in control. Church family, listen. Like, someone needs to hear this. That's not like a word from the Lord. That's just good math. Um, Maybe you're suffering and you feel like you can't catch a break. Maybe you've been devastated by wounds from someone else. Maybe it's a diagnosis. Or maybe you're totally overwhelmed with just trying to hold ordinary life and all its stresses together. Maybe something else. God is still in control. 
I can't promise you a timeline when you will be out from under your pain or your problems, but I can promise you it won't happen one second longer than he intends for his purposes. And family, listen, if you're here this morning and you've never wrestled with the truth of the sovereignty of God and all those good and proper questions about like how does evil fit into this, what about choice and things like that, how does a loving God use suffering, I would beg of you this for your own sake. Wrestle with those great truths now. Wrestle before the storm. Do the work of confessing the truth, reflecting on the truth, and then applying the truth now. Get to that important point where the sovereignty of God over all things goes past being a stinging point of bitterness and becomes a soft pillow on which to lay your head. And do it now before you need it. I will never forget how grateful I was of this, sitting in an ER room with my wife. As her body painfully miscarried our long-anticipated first baby, and through flowing tears and gasping breaths, she confessed over and over, I know he's sovereign, I know he's sovereign. Store this truth in your heart now, so that on the day you need it, it will be a soothing balm for your soul. God is sovereign. He is always in control. And more specifically, we see in our passage that he is sovereign over the means and the ends. Indeed, there would be no sovereignty to speak of at all if he was not sovereign over both the means and the ends, for the means lead to the ends. We see this in God's meticulous orchestration of all the varied events of our story, from the pit to Potiphar's house to prison to Pharaoh's house. We see this in the way that God has placed Joseph in prison at just the same time as the cupbearer, and he gives the cupbearer a dream. We see this in the way that he orchestrates every little detail to make his plan come to pass. God is not simply sovereign over the final product, but he is sovereign over the entire process. The process was hard for Joseph, right? Almost murdered, sold to slavery, falsely accused, thrown in prison, and yet God was working out his plan all the way through. Being in the process is hard, but God is superintending, superintending even that. God is utterly sovereign in accomplishing his purposes in the world. He's sovereign over the means and the end, and we also see that he's sovereign over rulers and authority. This is the repeated, repeated ad nauseum testimony of the scriptures. We see it in this passage, and we see it all throughout the scriptures. Whenever God... When God wants to preserve a people for himself, he can turn Pharaoh wherever he wants Pharaoh to go. When God wants, he can strike Pharaoh with a dream and cause him to be troubled in spirit. When God wills it, all the wise and powerful men in Egypt come up empty and they're sent to hurry God's man from a prison cell to being second in command in Egypt. When God wants his man in charge of the storehouses of Egypt, he works through Pharaoh and gets his man in place. As Proverbs 21.1 says, and I love this, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. 
This is the repeated testimony of the scriptures. And that Pharaoh will let his people go. In Ezra, when God wants his temple rebuilt, he stirs up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, to release the Israelites back to Jerusalem. And God can, in fact, actually get him to pay for it. I could go on, but I think there's an important application for us this morning. For our own sanity for our witness, and for his glory. You may have noticed there's an election going on. I would submit to you that if God was sovereign over Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, Artaxerxes, Caesar Augustus, King Herod, Pontius Pilate, the powerful persecutor Saul, Felix the governor, King Agrippa, the Caesar in Rome, and many more that I left out than maybe, just maybe, God is still sovereign over rulers, authorities, kings, prime ministers, parliaments, county commissioners, mayors, governors, congressmen, and even Supreme Court justices and presidents. So go vote. Go persuade. Go take action. That's all fine and necessary. But at the end of the day, don't trust ultimately in the power of temporal rulers in a temporal nation. Trust ultimately in the eternal ruler of an eternal kingdom who always accomplishes his purpose. God is sovereign over the means and the end. He's sovereign over rulers and authorities. And we also see that he's sovereign over suffering and injustice. In Joseph's suffering, God has something he wants to do in Joseph and through Joseph. In Joseph, God uses the suffering to prepare him, to take him from being that brash teenager that we read about in chapter 37 to becoming the humble, wise man that's needed to accomplish this work. Through Joseph, God uses the suffering to put him in the place that he needs so that he can exalt him at the right time. Joseph was brought low, but at the right time, God restores him. And for Joseph, he overcomes this suffering lavishly, as evidenced in the names that Joseph gives to his sons. Manasseh, God has made me forget. And Ephraim, God has made me fruitful. Joseph suffers and then is exalted. And this is an intensely biblical pattern that looks ahead in God's plan of redemption. Joseph suffers and then is exalted, just like Moses suffered and then was exalted for God's purpose, just like David suffered and then was exalted for God's purpose, just like Jesus unjustly suffered death, even death on the cross, sinless, yet taking on himself the punishment of the sins of you and I, and then was exalted, rising from the grave and ascending into heaven, where God bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So when we see Joseph suffer and then rise up, we're supposed to think forward to what will happen in Jesus, suffering and then rising. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, just, this is also just like us. If you are in Christ by faith, if you've bowed your knee to King Jesus, if you've submitted to him as your Lord, you will suffer in this life, but then one day you will rise to be with him in glory. God is sovereign over suffering and injustice, and he's sovereign for his purposes and his glory. We see in our passage 
that God's plan marches on. God's plan to set a people apart for himself. That's what we see happening in our passage, that God has a plan, he executes the plan, and he was always in control. But I think it's important that to be really clear on this point for us this morning. God's purposes are going forward. They're his purposes and not ours. Like, I think we could imagine Joseph had probably had a different plan for his life. There's a way that we can read this story with a certain, like, me-centered prosperity lens, right? We can read about how Joseph suffered in prison and then God blessed him with success and then we can think, we can walk out of here today and be like, that was so great. Oh, well, I'm suffering now and this means that God will bless me with success. That's what this means. It means I'm about to have my breakthrough. Something like that. If we're talking about this life, I can't promise you that this morning. If we're talking eternally, I can promise that one day that will be true. But if we're talking temporally, I can't promise you that God intends to do the same thing with the suffering in your life and, and, and end it with blessing like that. What's interesting for us is that we so quickly want to assume that we will escape our prison like Joseph with blessing and exaltation. But we don't so quickly assume that God's plan might be that we escape our prison with our head rolling like John the Baptist, or going out in a blaze of God-exalting worship like Stephen. As I read the Bible, both options and everything in between are on the table. We must remember that God's sovereignty isn't in the employ of our temporal comfort, but rather is in the employ of his purpose and his glory. Oh, let us long that our lives be made to count for his glory, no matter how he chooses to show off his glory in us. And then I close with this. God's sovereignty must lead to our action. Joseph declares that the events that will unfold are fixed by God, and then Joseph also gets to work with the actions that God uses to accomplish his plan. Settle this, okay? Settle this. The sovereignty of God doesn't negate the need for your action. The sovereignty of God gives rise to your action. The character of God does not negate the commands of God. So you get two questions. Is God sovereign over his plan, <clears throat> of his plan? Am I responsible for action? Like you can like banner these around, coffee house banner, whatever. Uh, here's the thing. Do whatever you need to do. Like, if you, if you haven't, like, worked that one out for yourself, do whatever you need to do. Go away to a corner of your house. Go for a walk. Go drive on 85 and think about this. And then conclude yes to both questions. Conclude that you can't figure it all out, that God is sovereign, that you are responsible. God is sovereign, and he works through human means. Just figure that out and then get after it. God puts his people right where he wants them, and he has, put you, he has put you right where you are for the purposes he has for you. Right? 
Think about that. Think about that. He has Joseph where he wants him. He has you where he wants you. He's put you in your job, your stage of life, in your neighborhood, in your base group, in your plenty, in your affliction, wherever it is, he has sovereignly put you right there so that you could do his work. So that you can do your part in his plan. When he wants to encourage the brother or sister in your base group, he does it through means. He has you there for that. When he wants to reach your neighbors, that's why he put you there. When he wants to reach a coworker, when he wants to reach some lady in a parking lot at a store, that's why he put you there. So that you can do your part in his plan with the people he has around you. And so, let us rest in the reality that the weight isn't on our shoulders. This is God's plan. He does the work. The weight's not on our shoulders. Let us rest knowing that God is utterly sovereign in accomplishing his purposes in the world. And then, let us align our lives getting after those purposes. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, that you are in control, that you are rightly reigning over this world, and that your reign is good. God, we pause for a moment to think about a simple truth that you are in control even of our lives. And Lord, I pray that you, as we walk out from here, you would help us to wrestle with what that means for each of us. Help us to know where we've neglected that. Help us to know where we've failed to live in light of the reality that you have something that you want to do through us in this world. Help us to know that as we walk out from here. God, help us to stay attuned to the fact that you have a plan and that we have a part in this plan even now. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.